This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. My name is Irving Berkner. I'm the Associate Director of International Studies here at the University. Um, on behalf of my center, the Center for International Studies, International House, the Seminary Co-op Bookstore, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and um, the McCormick Tribune Foundation, it's a pleasure to welcome you to this World Beyond the Headlines event. I wanted to mention before we get started uh, that this Friday there's a conference called Petroleum Prospect and Politics taking place here at the I-House. Um, it's Friday and Saturday. There's 13 different speakers. Uh, talking about issues like the international oil supply, U.S. energy policy, and uh, democratization in oil exporting nations. Um, they just called me yesterday. This is a student-organized conference, and they just called yesterday to say that they've got the Venezuelan ambassador to the United States speaking on Saturday. Uh, there's also, I think, somebody who's the Deputy Secretary of Energy of the United States is coming, so uh, it should be a pretty interesting panel. Um, it's organized by the Chicago Society, so you can uh, go and Google them and find the conference uh, information or just find a poster downstairs. Um, I also want to mention that tonight's event is being recorded, uh, both audio and video, and it will be broadcast on the web. Uh, you can see it, tell your friends about it, listen to it while you work out, uh, either at chiasmos.uchicago.edu or at uh, Chicago Public Radio's Chicago Amplified site, which is uh, chicagopublicradio.org slash amplified. And this is all free uh, and easily downloadable for you. So uh, it's an honor for me to introduce uh, William Langovisha. Is that, is that right? Fantastic. Practiced all week. Uh, who is currently the international editor for Vanity Fair magazine and formerly a national correspondent for the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, he's coming here just two weeks after winning a national magazine award for his Vanity Fair account of the marine killings of Iraqi civilians at Haditha. Um, and uh, the piece was lauded for its, I quote, moral clarity and tremendous literary force. Um, also, this Sunday uh, in the New York Times, uh, this book, The Atomic Bazaar, that he'll be talking about tonight, is the front page review in the New York Times book review. Uh, I got to see the piece in advance, and I think you can describe it pretty fairly uh, as extremely enthusiastic. Uh, the first sentence notes that Mr. Langevisha has formidable journalistic talent with cool, precise, and economical reporting. Um, the review also says that the most alarming thing about the book is uh, its utter lack of alarmism concerning the threat of nuclear terrorism. And I actually thought that might be refreshing to find something that wasn't alarmist about nuclear terrorism. Um, so following uh, Mr. Langevisha's remarks, there'll be time for questions. Uh, please just raise your hand. Um, we'll do that till about 7.15. And afterwards, uh, you're welcome to help yourself to food. And of course, buy many, many copies of the book. So with that, uh, please join me in welcoming William Langevisha. Thank you for the warm introduction and uh, for coming. Uh, this is the first time in my career that I have to use reading glasses on a book tour. <laughs> These things happen. So, look, I, I am uh, not a I'm not a professor, and I uh, and I'm really not a, a, a um, I'm not a scaremonger. Uh, I'm 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 a pretty simple guy. I get paid to go out in the world and observe and uh, write my observations down, that's what I've been doing for years. I'm not an expert on nuclear matters, um, but I've observed them now for a few years carefully and have been asked to do that by the Atlantic Monthly before working for Vanity Fair. This is primarily work I did at the Atlantic and by now is in book form. And uh, so I, I, I come at this subject in a way um, probably somewhat differently than, than other people do, M maybe less politicized, um, and and in, a, in a very earnest attempt just to see it clearly. Part of that is that I think that there, there should be limits on fear in general, including if we find that we are on a track to self-destruction and death uh, in one way or another, whether personally or collectively, there's a limit to how much fear we should allow ourselves. We should, of course, struggle against it and all of that. But fear is a major problem in this country. We've seen it after 9-11. I've, I've spent the last, much of the last three years in Iraq um, looking at the effects of American fear on the ground overseas. 
And I think that has probably informed my observations of the nuclear problem. Ultimately, if we get hit, so what? I mean, to some degree, there has to be that attitude. With that in mind, um, you can then look at the problem and say, no, we don't want to be hit, obviously. You know, we can do everything we can within reason not to get hit, within what is rational and possible in the world in which we live. And so this book really is just an attempt to look at that problem from, from a fairly cold point of view, in other words. Um, basically, the, the issue is proliferation that is the spread of nuclear weapons, not the existence. I mean, we can just pretty much write off the possibility of a nuclear-free world. I mean, that's not going to happen, and uh, you know, we can all dream of it, but uh, that's not a realistic, it's not a realistic basis for approaching this problem. These weapons are here to stay because the knowledge is here to stay. They're not that difficult to build, uh, and they're not going to go away. We've seen no indication that these weapons are going away. Rather, they are slowly spreading. And I think if you look at the the, the logic of what's going on, we had a period of, of I mean, after, after Hiroshima, people like Oppenheimer and, and Einstein, they believed that this weapon was so easily spreadable and so destructive that it meant the end of, of the world. And they, they, they understood right away that, this, that, the, that the yields of these weapons would increase and that we would have over, overkill capability and that anybody pretty much could have these weapons. The, the genie, as they said, was out of the bottle. And they predicted that there had I mean they they took radical steps. They were arguing in public for the sort of the abandonment of war, the merging of nation states. People like Einstein and Oppenheimer, they were saying fairly radical, highly idealistic things. Well, they were a little bit wrong in that they didn't forecast the balance of terror. That is, you know, mutually assured destruction. We all know about it. Um, that that kicked in, and it had a it did have a strong stabilizing. Basically, the Cold War with all of its dangers, it had a strong stabilizing effect on the spread of nuclear, limiting the spread of nuclear weapons. After the Soviet Union disappeared, um, things changed and the umbrellas that used to offer assurances to, to other countries uh, pretty much went away. It was no longer believable that either the Russia or the United States was going to go to nuclear war at the risk of the you know, end of time over your local political problems because it had the Cold War had gone away, the incentive wasn't there. So suddenly, a lot of countries in the world found themselves in a position of coming out from under these umbrellas that were believable umbrellas of nuclear security in a nuclearized world and facing the need to build weapons of their own. And we're talking about the, the proliferation now of nation states, not of terrorist groups. Um, the, this book is subtitled the, the Rise of the Nuclear Poor. I mean, you could say developing nations or undeveloped nations or third world, whatever term you want to use for them, uh, the poor nations of the world, had it suddenly within their capability to do something here. Now, it's not by chance that the first of the, outside of the original group of five, the club of five major nuclear powers, the United States, Soviet Union, England, Great Britain, France, and China, that the first to, to break out and to start and to nuclearize were, were maverick states. This was during the Cold War. We had India, um, was a formerly unaligned. Uh, Israel, of course, a maverick state, and South Africa. They all became nuclear armed. And now we seem to be looking at the next stage with countries like Pakistan, North Korea, Iran, and others will come. An attempt by Libya, an incompetent attempt, but still an attempt. And there are indications that Algeria, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, um, Syria, uh, prob probably, possibly Brazil again. Uh, if Brazil does it, Argentina. It's unpredictable. Proliferation moves and fits. It sometimes goes backward. There are successes in non-proliferation efforts, but we seem to be in a period where, where this will happen. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And as an observer, my attitude is struggle as best we can, be reasonable, pursue diplomatic uh, uh, paths, try to convince people not to do this. It's not a good thing to see the world with more and more nuclear armed states. But ultimately, understand that there are limits to what we can do. We cannot stop this from happening. And we'll give ourselves giant hernias if we try. Um, I mean, obviously, coming out of these years in, in Iraq, 
it brings the, brings the lesson home, the, li the limits, the limitations of, of power and the consequences of, 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 um, of ungrounded um, wars and, and policies. So now the question is, what about these countries? What, let's take the, the example, the classic example right now is Pakistan, but you could say Iran. Um, what should our attitude be toward these people? And the attitude has been, well, these guys are evil. They're irrational. They're, they're wrong. They're bad. They're, Dr. Khan, A.Q. Khan in Pakistan was an evil man. And Time magazine showed him as sort of Dr. Death on the cover, this sort of thing. I think it's totally wrong. I mean, these, these people are making rational choices. Oppenheimer said way back when, after Hiroshima, that, the, that there is no weapon on earth that delivers more bang for the dollar than an atomic bomb, a genuine atomic bomb. And he's right. I mean, this is the weapon of economy, of the poor. It costs a lot of money, but not compared to the, not compared to the alternatives. And if, you, if your goal is to exert political power, there's nothing like being nuclear armed. So these are actually, these are, are sort of philosophically understandable, practically understandable choices made by rational people and cultures and political systems that are different from ours and may be in opposition to us. But that doesn't make them evil. And it doesn't make them irrational. I mean, they, these are logical choices. In the case of Pakistan, of course, you then have another, another component which often comes into play, which is local rivalry. Right? India because of China, Pakistan because of India, Iran because they got Pakistan, they got Israel. The spread goes on like that. We, we all understand that. There is a form of domino effect in nuclear proliferation regionally. So in a way, we can understand it. Now, the moralists, of course, make the obvious point, and they make it heavily and all the time, as moralists tend to do, that, um, that uh, yeah, the United States is, 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 is heavily armed, and so is Russia. We have not really stood at all, stood down from our overkill capability. And so who are we to, to be lecturing the world about the right and wrong of nuclear weapons? Obvious. I mean, it's an obvious point. It's this point which everybody understands in the United States and in the third world. And it is used by the moralists in this country to scold ourselves and by the moralists in places like Pakistan and AQ Khan as an example to, to promote a sense of outrage that pushes forward proliferation. There's nothing we can really do about this. The United States is not going to stand down from its overkill capability, neither is Russia. And the moral, the moral outrage will exist on, in both ways. And okay, that's the world in which we live. Proliferation happens in that context. Um, then the question is, can they actually do it? Can, they, can, can these basically incompetent countries, I and mean, if you take a, a country like Pakistan, this is an incompetent country. Um, I mean, it's well proved to be incompetent. Not that the Pakistani people are incompetent, but as a structure, as a, as a political system, of course, it's grossly incompetent, always has been. It shows every side of it this week. And, um, can, can these guys actually do this? And the answer is yes, they can, because it's not that hard to do. Once the political choice is made, it will be sustained through changes in regime, probably, because it is a logical choice. In the case of Pakistan, it's very understandable that they want to do this. And they have the technical expertise, homegrown, and the intellectual power, homegrown, to handle this. They have the engineering capabilities to handle this. It's obviously done by the elites. And... Um, it's said that, uh, that A.Q. Khan was a great spy. I'm sure some of you know this story, certainly in this book, um, uh, of his spying in the Netherlands. And, and much credit is given to, to this act of spying for you know, the, the terrible thing that the Dutch allowed this information, which was the technology and the engineering of centrifuges necessary for the enrichment of uranium to escape uh, the classified walls of a uranium enrichment facility in Holland. And that's, again, uh, what, what Khan did, as he himself said, that what he stole or borrowed, what he walked away from the Netherlands with blueprints for these, these centrifuges, helped him out. But it was a small part of the, of the total effort that he had to, that he had to, to solve, that he had to pursue. And um, uh, it's, it's obvious that uh, it probably expedited things by five or six years. And uh, either way, he was going to have his nuclear, nuclear weapons. This was a very smart, is, he's alive today, determined and smart and patriotic Pakistani, supported fully by his government. Um, so the answer is yes. I mean, if Pakistan can build a nuclear arsenal in 10 years, anybody can, except maybe Gaddafi. 
<laughs> and maybe Gaddafi ordered finally from Pakistan the full range of enrichment uh, equipment, and uh, then out of sheer incompetence, just left it sitting in crates in the desert. Never used it. Too much oil money, not enough brains. That's a problem the Texans have also. <laughs> um, so let's, then the question is, can we stop them? If, well, let's say, just from a real politic, we can understand that these guys are not crazy, but we don't want to see a world in which this is happening. Can we stop them? Can we stop them through diplomatic means, economic sanctions, or making war? And the evidence is mixed. I mean, yes, you can stop. Some countries can be stopped. In, in combination, all of those things can work. Um, other countries, there's no way you're going to stop them. And uh, if you take the example of Iraq, a country, again, keeps coming up tonight, but uh, Iraq did have a nuclear weapons program. And it was basically stopped by a combination of, 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 of force. I mean, the Israelis hit it first, a reactor. And then the, Gulf, the first Gulf War occurred, and it froze the weapons development. They did have a weapons development program, and it was moving quite well along, and they were toward having atomic bombs. Um, you, you, can, you can go in and bomb facilities, in other words, but you, one thing you can't do is you can't bomb ideas out of people's heads, either the political motivation or the knowledge. And this, this knowledge is public domain. It's not that difficult to do. So you can, hold a, you can set a country back, but at what price? At what price regionally in terms of your own extension, overextension of political power and military power and all of the problems we now are very familiar with in the Middle East. So that, this, that, that, that is the question, what price do we pay to, to set them back? We're not really going to be able to stop this process. And really what I'm saying in this book is let's, maybe we should, should learn to live with it, live with a, country, a world in which many countries with opposing ideologies and many poor countries with incompetent political systems have nuclear weapons. I think we're going to see it. Um, and I don't think there's much we can do about it. Now, what is it, what, what do we know about a country that acquires, and again, I'm talking about nation states, that acquires nuclear weapons? And take the worst case, take North Korea. I mean, this is a place with a certifiably nutty regime. Of course, much worse than Pakistan. Uh, are they not going to be subject to the same logic of, of retaliation? There's, there's really no, no indication that, that, that even the most apparently wild, politically and ideologically wild governments are going to want to use their nuclear weapons if they acquire them any more than we have wanted to or the Russians have wanted to. It's for very simple reasons. They're, they're actually very conventional. Even the North Korean regime is very conventional. They're, they're playing the game, which is, in my opinion, an obsolete game, which is the game of the nation state. Uh, they, they, they have a government and they have an infrastructure and they have, you know, they have their palaces or government buildings or whatever they have, their military. They have all of this stuff to protect their wealth, their families, their friends, their societies, their cities. They have fixed targets. And they are, in every case, very aware that if they ever used a nuclear weapon, that would be wiped out. Somebody would hit them back. It's hard to think of any nation that could strike another nation without having some other nation, whether the one struck or some third nation, hit them with nuclear weapons. So, in fact, there's really no indication, and let's take the case of Iran, which is now much in the news, the Iranians claim they're not building nuclear weapons. Of course, this is nonsense. The Iranians are building nuclear weapons. They're following the same, the same pattern that, that, that the Iraqis did, by the way, and that the Pakistanis did, and everybody has done, including the Israelis, of denial. Of course, they're building nuclear weapons. They're going after it as hard as they can. The only question with Iran is why they haven't gone faster. Why were the Pakistanis able to do it so much faster than the Iranians? Because, of course, Iran is a very competent society, and uh, I mean, traditionally very competent. And um, so mystery, but in any case, they are they do they are in the pursuit of nuclear weapons. Now, does that mean that that once they have these weapons, they're going to hit Israel? Are we going to are we going to believe the, the the wild declarations of the president of Iran that Israel should be wiped off the face of the earth? That he's actually going to try to do that at what cost to him and his country? It's, it's highly unlikely, highly unbelievable that he would do that. Possibility exists. 
but we live in a dangerous world. And there's really nothing we can do to stop it. That's the point. So maybe we should, should learn or we can learn to look at this problem in a way that is more sort of livable, that we can, we can actually learn to live with an Iran that has nuclear weapons in a dangerous neighborhood for logical reasons. Um, certainly we don't have the capability to go to war. We, and and if, of course, I, this week again, you know, we're looking at the news and listening to the various belligerent statements by, by both sides. Uh, you, you, you wonder if we, if we strike, if we strike their facilities, if we take them out with them, cruise missiles, what, what the consequences would be to us, to the United States, to the oil and to all of that, and the Straits of Hormuz and all of that. So anyway, this is nothing, nothing that everyone doesn't already know. There's no indication that third world countries are any more likely to use nuclear weapons than first world countries are. They follow the same logic. The same, they're playing the same game. All right, now the next question is in the logical progression of proliferation. What if they give these weapons to non-state groups, to terrorist groups, to, to uh, people who, who don't have territory at risk? And this is a, in, ter in terms of the transfer problem, that is to say, let's say Pakistan is often given as an example, Iran. Um, Again, it seems highly unlikely. This is, if you, on close inspection, is a false problem. It's not a, that's not a guarantee. Nobody knows the future. Their life is dangerous. The world is dangerous and all of that. But it seems highly unlikely. And the reason is that, the, that the, the, a terrorist group, let's use that word, and we're talking about stateless terrorist group. It's a word which is you know, loaded these days. But... Um, is very likely to use a nuclear weapon if they could get one. I mean, this, they, there would be no reason to hesitate, and there's no, there would be essentially no consequence uh, for a stateless group with nothing to protect. So if you are a, you know, violently opposed to the United States as a government, let's say you're Iran five, ten years from now, and even more angry than now, um, and you want to hand a weapon over to a terrorist group to, to hit New York or Chicago, um, you know that if, that if that happens, they, if you hand that weapon over, they will try to do it. And if they do it, within hours, it will be known where that weapon came from. Because nuclear explosions have, have plenty of evidence contained within them of the design of the weapon. And nuclear weapons vary across the board. Very quickly, it would be known where, where the weapon came from. And that country would be held to account. It doesn't do them any good. To, to use surrogates to, to nuke their enemies. It does no country any good to do that. Nations want nuclear weapons uh, because they want to threaten with them, basically. They don't want to use them. Terrorists, it's a different, different deal entirely. Um, but I want to say one last thing about the national side. The problem for a, a country that wants to have that kind of political power, nuclear weapons, and, and, the, and the, is that um, one or two weapons doesn't do the trick. They have to have a, the ability to, to continue to manufacture the weapons. And the key here with, it, with, with in a, the manufacture of any nuclear weapon is in the fuel. The difficult thing is the fuel. To, to the enrichment of uranium, the extraction of plutonium, much more difficult than the design of the weapon. You can then go to the nth degree in miniaturization and missiles and make it as nice as military, fancy, whatever you want. But basically the, the problem is you have to manufacture this stuff and that's, that's a big, big industrial project. Um, countries have to go through that. There's no way around it. They cannot buy enough fissile material on the black market to, to, to answer their needs. And their needs is a sustained arsenal, not just one or two weapons, um, and which they do not want to use and which are very effective. And one final point is, that of course, I'm sure many of you know that the five permanent security member council members are, um, are all the great, great five nuclear powers. I mean, this is not by chance, certainly. <coughs> so this stuff works, and it's the arsenal that counts. You don't dare use it. You're going to get hit if you do. You don't dare, dare give it to somebody else. You're going to get hit if you do. But now comes the problem of Let's just take it in isolation. In other words, I guess to summarize, what I'm saying is that 
you can't turn away from nuclear proliferation and into, into nation states and third world countries um, as, as being, it is a problem, it is a concern, we should resist it to some degree, but it's not the end of the world. Um, now what about terrorist groups? Terrorist groups is a whole different game. And we, we know that the problem that they have, I mean, the huge advantage they have in this game is that they don't have any territory. Which is a, they've liberated themselves as capital has liberated itself from the pettiness of the nation state and someday I hope to liberate myself from it. But they've done it. And they've done it militarily and they've done it personally, ideologically, physically. They, they don't have anything that we can hit. This is the great frustration for people like our president. Uh, so these guys, if they could get a nuclear weapon, and they only need one or two, um, they don't need an arsenal. Uh, they could do. They could bring this, the West, to its knees through a, a sort of the, the type of reaction we saw after 9/11, and um, the self-destruction. And one strike would cause. Well, nobody knows what would, what the effect would be, but there are serious people who are not hysterics who worry. I think correctly that it could be, it could, it could be a, a sort of, as they say in their fancy talk, an existential threat to the West. Um, that's kind of academic talk. But in any case, uh, um, now I looked at this rather carefully, that, that is the nuclear terrorism issue, and I spent a lot of time traveling to those parts of the world, looking at the questions of transport through the mountains on the opium routes, looking at the stockpiles in the secret cities of Russia, east of the Urals, at the possible assembly points in the Middle East and elsewhere. And um, it came away with the following idea. The, a terrorist who wants to do this, and there can't be more than maybe, well, who knows, but you know, 20, 30 people in the world who are in a position to actually think they might be able and want to do this. It's a very small group of people where they've got to have money, they've got to have intent, they've got to have competence, they've got a variety of things. There aren't that many people. It's a very small market. But it exists. We know it exists. And for good reason. I mean, it would be enormously effective. So they, they, they can't realistically hope to borrow a weapon from their friends. They know they're going to have to make the weapon. Um, and they, in order to make the weapon, they have to have the fuel. Now, the advantage they have is because they don't want an arsenal, they don't need to make the, they don't need to manufacture the fuel, they just need to steal it. And what they, what they want, and again, this book goes into it in detail, is they don't want plutonium, it's difficult to handle, they want highly enriched uranium, weapons grade greater than 90% enriched, which can be handled with your bare hands, you can sleep on it, it's not a problem, you can shield it lightly and move it past radiation monitors. You need about 100 pounds, divided in two. Because you put it together, it would go, go critical on you. Um, so you need two lumps, two bricks. It's very heavy stuff. And where do you get it? Well, the world has got quite a lot of it around. Weapons grade, I'm talking about. Not stuff associated with nuclear power plants. You know, I mean, there's, no, there's very little crossover here. Not stuff really associated with medical facilities or with research labs at the universities. Even though the universities do have greater than 90% HEU, it's very small quantities. You need 100 pounds, not a few grams. So, so where do you find it? Probably you still go to Russia. And Russia is the place with enormous stockpiles of, 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 of 90, greater than 90% HEU, weapons grade HEU. You go to Russia, and you find yourself where I was in these secret cities. And um, you find yourself in a world that is no longer the Russia post-Soviet Union. It's the world of, of Vladimir Putin, which is an increasingly authoritarian police state with a lot of corruption going on. It's very difficult to steal fissile material um, in Russia, which is the most vulnerable place. It's possible, though. And again, to keep this short, um, I'll say that in looking at this very carefully and not ideologically, um, I came to the conclusion that many of the scenarios painted in the West of the horror stories of commando raids going in and guys with bandanas on their head and all is nonsense because you, even if you could hit these places, which have got drunk soldiers and guys who are high on drugs around them and all that, you might be able to go in there and take the, the stuff out, but you're, you've got to travel the roads. You, you're in the middle of the Urals. You've got to get to the borders. You can't just 
drive down the road for, for 300 miles and expect you're not going to get caught. Um, you're in Russia and then surrounded by it. Uh, so you're not going to, you know, the only way is to get it out without the Russians knowing that you did it. And the only way, in other words, is corruption. I mean, and that's a possibility. And there's plenty of corruption in those secret cities. It's not an obvious thing. You're, you're, you're probably not a Russian. You're a Middle Easterner, or you are something or other, but you're probably not a native Russian from that area. You want to go in there and corrupt people, try to do that. It's not that easy to do without getting arrested. The FSB is all over that place. The FSB being the former KGB. So, but let's say it's possible. Americans have been very concerned about this and have done a, a really an excellent job. The U.S. government has done an excellent job in helping the Russians to secure their stockpiles. This is a, our largest expenditure in Russia of foreign aid. It's been going on for more than 10 years, and uh, it's been partially effective. The problem is that we, at that point, fail. If somebody penetrates their defenses, built partially with American money, through corruption, which will cut through physical defenses, and our, our, most of our efforts have been in physical defenses, um, if somebody undermines that with money and pulls out 100 pounds worth of HEU that the Russians don't know about and starts moving toward an assembly point, and I would posit Istanbul, partly because it's just a city that I love, um, nice place. So why not build a bomb there? It certainly actually would be a likely place to, for the assembly of a nuclear weapon. You have to move this material through Russia, through the Caucasus, into Turkey, joining the opium routes coming in from Central Asia. The transport system is there, and you get it to um, you get it to your assembly point. Spend six months to a year out of there in a machine shop. You could do that. Almost anybody could do that. It's not difficult. Uh, our American efforts fail at that point. At the point where we have lost in Russia, that is, they've got the material. We really don't have any defenses. And just to lighten this up a little bit. I will do one thing. I will read you something from the book. This is not a book reading. Um, and it's, this is a, a typical of what we, of, of, of American or European governmental thinking. Um, faced with this possibility of fissile material being smuggled across the land borders of the Caucasus, we have gone into places like Armenia and Georgia and attempted to help the governments there um, strengthen their borders with our great expertise. Um, and it's this incredibly governmental way of seeing things, of the problem. Is that what they're doing is they're building border posts and, and putting in radiation monitors at border posts. But there's, there's places are nothing but narcotic smuggling and every other kind of smuggling going on. So I'll just read you something. Um, I said, in Washington, I spoke to one of the many officials in town who, though carrying out their assignment, assignments reasonably well, are too nervous about domestic politics to dare being identified. He described a national, an NSA, basically a federal effort, called the Second Line of Defense, capital S, which installs radiation monitors at border crossing points throughout the former Soviet Union and especially along likely, the likely smuggling routes of Central Asia and the Caucasus. South of Russia, the program is most fully developed in the troubled Republic of Georgia, a skeletal nation threatened by separatist enclaves and barely able to keep warm through the winters. The official said, and this is in Washington, the Corps of Engineers is working with U.S. Customs to build a whole new border crossing facility in Georgia, and we're in the process of installing upgraded radiation monitors in conjunction with that. I said, I guess I can see the logic of the radiation monitors, but why are we building customs stations for the Georgians? And then he says, it's a joint venture to try to control smuggling. And then I say, it's amazing. Georgia is one of the most corrupt nations on earth. Many of its politicians are crooks. Its officials routinely steal. Its economy is based almost entirely on black markets. Its people have nothing to survive on if they do not hustle. I said, why should we care about ordinary smuggling in Georgia? Cigarettes? Vodka? Fuel? For that matter, narcotics? What I meant was, if even the ordinary black markets of Georgia are seen as a threat, where does the impulse to impose order end? He stayed in his lane but executed a tidy reversal. It's a good question, he said, and I don't know that I have the answer, but the genesis anyway was nuclear. So I guess in conjunction with our new equipment, it makes sense for customs to upgrade the stations. This is how government works. In urgent response to the attacks of September 11, the U.S. Customs Service was absorbed into the new U.S. Department of Homeland Security. 
where it was combined with the U.S. Border Patrol into a new agency named U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP. Officially, the CBP says that it is the executive agent for a congressionally mandated multi-agency border security and related law enforcement assistance program to the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. Hoping to get some sense for the realities, I went to Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, and the next morning headed over to the magnificent new monumental bunker-style U.S. Embassy on the outskirts of the city for an interpretation. The Americans there had said they were willing to talk about the program, but now with their public relations minder sitting nervously in, they were so guarded that even off the record they ended up saying nothing at all. In any case, they seemed to be winding down in anticipation of a three-day federal weekend. I forget which one. Georgian officials were more forthcoming when I mentioned my surprise that expensive improvements are being made to the ports of entry while the rest of the border remains utterly uncontrolled. A senior officer of the Georgian border guards nodded sympathetically and said there was some history I needed to know. He said the United States had initially given them funds to buy three helicopters from Ukraine with which to fly patrols. They had acquired two of the helicopters, and although one of them was then grounded for lack of spare parts, the other was still being flown, and by a daredevil border guard pilot who gives thrilling rides and is also a great guy. Problems arose, however, over the third helicopter, which appeared to have been paid for but never showed up in town. Americans do not normally care about wastage, the officer explained. For example, they insist on supplying the border guards with desktop computers billed to American foreign aid accounts at more than twice the price for which the same computers can be bought in Tbilisi stores. Nonetheless, they were annoyed by the disappearance of an entire helicopter's worth of dollars. They said, he said, they reacted by reasserting control over American capital improvement funds and quietly announcing that henceforth, the big money would be spent only on immovable objects that are awkward to sell and impossible to fly away. Ports of entry fit the bill. I drove south to the model project, a station dubbed Red Bridge by the Americans, which stands at the main crossing point between Georgia and Azerbaijan. The first improvement there was the construction of a housing compound on flat ground where rotating units of the border guards had previously been camping in tents and cooking their meals over open fires. By the time the US, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security was finished with it in 2003, the compound consisted of five single-family houses, a barracks for 64 men, a dining hall, an administration building, a vehicle maintenance garage, a warehouse for supplies, an armory, various utility buildings, a dog kennel, two water storage buildings, a sewage plant, an electrical substation, a perimeter fence, two guard towers, two helipads, a sports field, a separate soccer field, some new paved roads and parking lots, and of course, a parade ground. After the official opening, a U.S. Customs and Border Protection newsletter asked the CBP project manager, James Kelly, is it as grand as it sounds? Indeed it is, Kelly said. It was built to Western standards. Golly, and that was merely phase one. The United States then shifted its spending down the road to the port of entry itself, where Georgian customs officials were using shipping containers with holes cut in the sides as offices and booths. Over the following two years, the U.S. government oversaw the construction of a $2.2 million facility whose primary purpose, according to the CPB, would be to, quote, help Georgia become a more effective partner in the worldwide effort to control the passage of terrorists and their weapons, end quote. This time, the improvements included a six-lane roadway, comfortable booths, cargo inspection areas, closed-circuit remote-controlled television cameras, lots of computers, a high-frequency long-distance radio communication system, and the crowning glory, a beautiful air-conditioned, two-story, stucco-walled building with spaces for processing the grateful public, as well as detention cells, back offices, a dormitory wing for Georgian customs agents, private sleeping rooms upstairs for American officials and other VIPs, and even a second-floor patio, apparently for sitting outside on warm evenings. Anyway, I won't keep going with that description. But that gives you an idea. I mean, the, the, this is, of course, an, an extreme and typical example of, of the way we are, we're trying to deal with the problem, which is real, of the smuggling of fissile material, if ever it gets out into the black market. And there's no evidence yet, at this point, that it, that it ever has. But if it ever does, this is known as a low-probability, high-consequence event. And if we don't stop it in the transit, 
the chances of stopping it at every stage along the way after that are decreased and decreased. The chances of stopping it at the, at the point of production are smaller, at the point of delivery are smaller. So we are, we sort of are, are we meaning we, we who support the American government, we the American government, we the American people whose agents are the American government or the Europeans for that matter, we throw up our hands and saying we look at the world and we say it's chaotic. There's, the, the governments can't control it. There, there are narcotics coming across those mountains. We've been fighting narcotics for years and we can't stop the narcotics. We're going to build, we'll build, we'll build Red Bridge. We'll build this border crossing point. We'll do something. You know, we'll put in radiation monitors because we are completely helpless outside of the governmental realm. We are, we are a government. We talk to governments. We can't do anything about the rest of the world. This is a major failure of the American defense against a very real problem, which is the possibility of, of, of a terrorist nuclear hit someday, someday. Um, relatively easy to solve. And uh, part of what I do in this book is sort of set about proving that to myself, not to make policy recommendations, but just to quietly, in my own way, to go out in the mountains and talk to the people who are moving narcotics. Um, perfectly, perfectly open to conversation, these people are, in fact, if you're just a little bit discreet in how you approach them. More to the point, what you, can, what you find in places that appear to be chaotic, that are on the routes that fissile material could be moving on, you find, in fact, that there's very, very rare in this world is, is, is true chaos. Anarchy hardly exists. It exists temporarily and very quickly some form of order comes in. Non-governmental order. And increasingly in the world we're seeing systems of non-governmental order coming in, um, not just around this story. But what you find quickly is you find the pattern. It may be in the form, as I saw, in the, between uh, Turkey and Iran in the mountains there, uh, of, of clans, um, large families. Or it may be in the form of criminal organizations. Uh, it may be in the form of businesses. But one way or another, there's a form of order that comes in. And it's easily discernible. It doesn't take long, a few days. Who's in charge around here? You know, what goes on? Just ask a few questions. And... Uh, the first time I started doing that, this is an exercise, in fact, on the border between Turkey and, uh, and Iran, I told them I was an English professor. And uh, just because, I mean, that was pretty innocent. And, and uh, they, at some point, there was a limit to what an English professor could ask. They started saying, why, why is an English professor asking these questions? And I told them I was on vacation, I was interested in the world. And then when I went back again, I, t I told them I'm a reporter, and people tend to understand that, and the conversations went a lot farther. The point is, it doesn't take much talent or effort to figure out what the, what the structure is of control, and there's always some structure of control, but we are not tapping into it. If we did, we would be a much safer country for it without suppressing our civil liberties, without throwing money away on port facilities and corrupt countries, without going to needless wars uh, over something, um, well, this is something we can't control. So, I guess I'll leave it at that. There are similar issues associated with the construction of the weapon and with the delivery, where we find ourselves pretty, pretty, pretty much just abandoning the problem uh, through lack of imagination. Um, and 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 okay, so we we could someday get hit. I guess finally, there's one last thing, and that is that wouldn't it be wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a world in the United States which would do the completely unrealistic and say in advance. If you hit us, we will take the hit. We don't want to be hit, but we'll take it. And we will not complain. We will not overdo our reaction. So, you know, we will diminish the effect of what you want to do to us. We will, we will mourn our dead, and there will be possibly several hundred thousand. We will re rebuild the city as quickly as we can, and we will accept whatever level of radiation poisoning without complaint. So, go to hell. You know, hit us if you can. And... Uh, that attitude, of course, would be very effective, but it's, again, that's sort of like asking the United States to disarm, you know, unilaterally. It's not going to happen. You know, we, we're not that kind of society. So, that's it. I mean, I'm happy to talk about anything. I like your talk, particularly the last comment. And uh, I, I think as you suggest, the, the USA won't do that. Why? This, I, this is a, a bias I have. I will incorporate to my question. 
the United States has lost the moral compass. It's demoralized and lost the moral compass. That's why I had the guts to, to be a, a big boy and said, no, I won't hit you back. Uh, my question is, <clears throat> what do you think, oh, the Iranian people, the Iranian people, what, uh, what they think, the government people, politicians, whatever, what, what they think of their intimacy among themselves uh, upon the fact that, uh, that uh, Israel has many atomic bombs. Sure. Fact. Yeah, it's not just the Iranian people, it's of course the entire Middle East is right. very aware of this. Yeah, I, I say, say the, the Iranian people and also the, 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 the Muslim people in that area. Okay, upon the fact that Israel has many atomic bombs. Mm -hmm. And the other fact is that our government, our mainstream press, act as they never heard of that. And, and, and said, well, the Middle East should be clean of uh, atomic weapons. And therefore, we should go after Iran to solve these problems and do not pollute this lovely land. I, I, I can't. I don't. I don't. Actually, I thought. I thought it's been pretty clear in the in the press that the Israel has the weapons. But of course, the, I mean, the the level of resentment in the Middle East. I mean, take Iraq. I mean, the level of resentment of Israel's of Israel's nuclear weapons is is, is, is very high. And and I, if you look at the at the at the, the at Pakistan, it was very much in reaction to. To Israel now, I think Israel probably needs those nuclear weapons. So it's not to, it's not to damn Israel. You know, Israel a besieged state for whatever the politics are. I can understand the decision to go nuclear in Israel. If you ever wanted to see a place, a you know, small place, and very effective to have some nuclear weapons around, but that's not to deny that other people would be rather angry about that and might want to do the same thing. Of course, so I just think this is the this is the story of the you know of the world, and we'll see more and more of it. And uh, we can learn to live with it. I, being morally outraged about the Iranians acquiring nuclear weapons is, of course, silly. Well, the Iranian people, the other people, what do they, uh, how do they read, how do they interpret the fact that our government, our free press, a democracy, uh, does not acknowledge the, the, the Israel uh, I, I don't. I don't. I can't answer that, sir. I, I would say that it probably depends on the level of sophistication of the Iranian. You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. Yes. Uh, was A.Q. Khan a loose cannon, or was he following the? No. Was he following the policies. Of oh the no, he, he was. Of course, he was following the policies of okay. Pakistan. But and he no, he was an agent of the Pakistan. Pakistan, yeah. of, absolutely, no question about it. Okay. Including in the sale. Of weapons, but 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 he also the odd thing about him is that in his personality, and I go into this in this book, he was a loose cannon. I mean, he became a loose cannon. He wasn't that in the beginning. He was a really nice, very smart, very effective guy, a good engineer, not brilliant or anything, but he had this success, and he was elevated to the level of, of a deity in Pakistan, and it went to his head. I mean, it's still. I mean, he just went. I mean, megalomania and, and completely un unable to see himself as a man anymore. He was the savior of Pakistan. In some ways, he really was, but but it went to his head in an unusual way. So, uh, so he did actually act as a serious and effective agent of Pakistani policy, government, and you could say even legitimate mm -hmm. policy, and at the same time, went nuts, oh. you know. Like presidents do, you know, people with, like that. Went nuts how? Well, too much power, too much fame. Thought every everything, you know, he owned everything. He was basically taking all the public money and using it as his own, building hospitals left and right. He was just too grand a man. I mean, anybody who becomes that grand is has lost his marbles to some degree, right? We're all sort of supposed to be equal under God. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, I, I actually have had this discussion with with serious people in the U.S. government who are concerned of it, about it and are aware of it. And recently, um, um, I think politically inside of Washington, it's very difficult to do. I think a lot of people in the government understand that this needs to be done. It's not difficult to understand this, but. There are political pressures and jealousies and all of the 
the dynamics of Washington come into a play in a way that I am, have the luxury of ignoring. And they don't, uh, because there will be always be some outraged congressman who forms a committee and then says, you're dealing with narcotics traffickers? You know, America is it? What is you know, or something like that? Okay, so you, you, there are those problems, and and they they're real problems. I mean, they, this 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 is not not something that they can ignore, but I can ignore it. And now, the other aspect of it is that there is this whole issue of force protection, and that force protection is not just a military term. Our diplomats are fully have full, fully fallen into this trap, as has the CIA. So if you look at our, you know, our, our, our government agents, they spend most of their time in the rougher parts of the world concerned about their own safety. And um, uh, this, of course, limits their ability to do what I do, which is to wander around. And you can't do this kind of work without wandering around. You can't engage with the world outside of government structures unless you wander around quietly, not in black SUVs with escorts, <laughs> you know, just quietly, hitchhike, take a taxi. That kind of thing. Yeah, I have a friend who is art, the article about him was actually in the New York Times recently, who's doing conservation biology in Iraq. And he is working with different groups and he is speaking to this because he said this is a path to security. These people are working in agrarian cultures. Um, we need to be working in these areas to assure security in this part of the world. And it's not a political movement that he has, it's working as in some ways you do in his area of specialty working with the local people and the local power structures to meet the needs of the area. Mm -hmm. And it's quite effective in a small way. You know, so the, of course the government, I mean, the, and the, the, the thing about the, the government is, as you know, is that the individuals are often very smart, very decent people, but they're trapped in a system which has a history and institutional weight and forces acting on it that are above and beyond them. And so that's, that's the nature of history. Yes. For your faith in the rationality of uh, totalitarian governments, have you read about the Glomar Explorer? The Glomar Explorer, remind me. It was the one. The one that brought up the the. the Soviet submarine. Yes. Yeah. It turns out now that there was a Soviet su the Soviets sold three submarines to the Chinese of an old class. Then a year later, this is '67. Then a year later, in '68, they sent three submarines down and out from China. And that one of them, two, two of them stayed back, but one came close and they were gonna blow up Honolulu. We blew up the ship first. But th this was a plot carried out by the KGB in order to make us go to war with China. Well, track from China. The idea that these are non-state actors, I mean, the ISI is running Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and so is, you know, the other agencies. These guys aren't non-state actors. And these people, the Russians were going to blow Honolulu. I mean, you should read this book before you think about how you do this. Okay. Well, in any case, I'm not issuing policy recommendations. And, 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 and I, would, I would just say that um, I think that it, it's obvious that people who can, who think they can get away with using a nuclear weapon without it being traced back to them, whether they're state or non-state or whatever it is, are much more likely to use it than a state is, that's all. But, yes? Uh, I just, uh, I know partially touched on uh, Africa, particularly the Democratic Republic of Congo, which yeah. has uh, access to uranium. Right. And uh, uh, corruption right. is endemic. And I don't see uh, how it, uh, somebody uh, would not, uh, actually, we can get terrorists, go set the camp out there, make their way, do right. whatever they need to do, and actually ship it all the way to the Indian Ocean, and ship it all the way oh, yeah. no without one, being caught. Yeah. Now, in, in fact, the U.S. government went in, in the case of Kinshasa, there's that reactor, which I, or just, I just recently saw it, that particular reactor, but the, the, we went in there and got that stuff out. So that's part of the effective. I mean, part of the effective work that has been done, truly, uh, by the by the U.S. government is is the removal of some of the more vulnerable uh, HEU in in Kinshasa, as, as very specifically one place in places like Kinshasa. So I think a lot of that problem has gone away. The totally unsecured places in, in unsecured stockpiles in places like the 
Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC. <laughs> yes? Yes. Uh, do you think that the nations of the world have a right to defend themselves? And in today's world, does that not really mean obtaining nuclear weapons, particularly in view of the fact that there have been a lot of aggressive uh, moves by more powerful nations? Of course. Uh, particularly the United States. I'd rather not think about the rights. I mean, I think I, I because I, it gets into the moral ground that I try to stay out of. But but I think, of course, yeah, sure. And, and and by the way, whether it's a moral question or not, it's effective. So if yeah. you are North Korea yeah. and you're feeling however insanely you are, however insane you are, and however paranoid and all that, isolated, if you're feeling that you're being, you know, you might be run over, nothing like getting a few nuclear weapons to stop that from happening. Yeah, sure. Yes. Um, this is somewhat related to a comment a couple of time, uh, comments ago, but I, I, I just wanted to ask you, to, to what extent is it either useful or counterproductive to uh, regard nation states that engage in nuclear calculus to be monolithic entities in their decision making? or? Some kind no, of, those, of course. I mean, you know, like there, there are variations. Of course, you're right about that, and that's where the, the nuclear non-proliferation treaty and all the diplomatic efforts can be effective. So it depends. It, this is not. It's not monolithic. It, these, it, in every case, it's different. And absolutely. So I certainly am not saying you know throw up your hands. I mean, I know that recently in in the in sort of the public discourse of the United States, there has been an element saying the. The nuclear non-proliferation treaty has failed. It's a joke. It didn't work. It's a walk away from it. That's, I think, completely wrong. I mean, it has been partially successful, and the dynamics changed according to the country and also according to the time. So, I mean, it was it worked a certain way during the Cold War. It's working less effectively since then. It's not a reason to walk away from it. In fact, it needs to be strengthened, and and the export control laws that surround it need to be strengthened, and all of that. I mean, absolutely. It's not, this is not, a, I mean, I think it would be, uh, it would be ideologically extreme to, 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 to simplify things too much, and I, I don't intend to, do, I don't do that in this book, and don't intend to do that. But there's a level of realism also that's necessary, you know, that, that's ultimately when the NPT does not work, and there will be many cases when it does not work, and there have been, you know, what do we do then? What do we do? Yes? Um, I, I would agree with your statement that deterrence is a logic and reliance on crazy individuals to, to bomb, but why not apply that same logic to terrorist organizations themselves? Why are, is it, why just because they don't have a territory are they, well, they expected to use the bomb? Well, the same problem we have with 9-11, who are we going to hit, you know? And then the Tibbets in here, the, the guy who dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, now maybe I'm simplifying your question. Am I simplifying your question? Am I oversimplifying it? Well, what I'm saying is, what is the gain for a terrorist organization with one nuclear weapon? Oh, oh, use that? oh, huge, huge. Yep. The, the counting on the self-destructive capabilities of the West. I mean, it's, it is the, the, the same gain as blowing up a bomb in a marketplace, only a lot more. So it's to the nth degree. I mean, it's the ultimate. And you don't need really more than one. And you, I mean, it would make 9-11 look like child's play in terms of the reaction to it. Not, not the actual explosion, it's not the issue, it's the reaction to it. This is what, of course, they count on. I mean, it's just, everybody knows the dynamics of terrorism. But, and of course, I mean, the, the point I was making is that they're, they're essentially, they're, they feel invulnerable, not only because they're willing to die, many of us are, no problem there, that doesn't make them fanatics, but because they have nothing to lose. I mean, they, they, they don't have, they have, there's no territory. So, I mean, when, I was saying before, when the guy who dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, his name is Paul Tibbetts, he's still, as far as I know, alive, as we speak, though he's probably, you know, getting there. Um, but this guy, this guy after 9-11, Studs Terkel, I think he's a Chicago writer, huh? yeah, uh, he, he um, interviewed him. And Studs Terkel must also not be a spring chicken. I, is he? Yeah. So he went to, to talk to, to, to Tibbetts, and he said, well, what do you think we should do? And Tibbetts said, just nuke these guys, you know, they hit them. I mean, his, rather than being sort of a, a, a reformed man and a pacifist having nuked Hiroshima, hell no. You know, he, his reaction to 9-11 was to hit them with nuclear weapons. But who? I mean, what are you going to do, hit Mecca? Mm -hmm. Cairo? You know, it's the same problem, obviously, we had 
we've, we've had with Afghanistan um, and certainly we've had with Iraq. And, you know, you just don't know who these guys are, where they come from. We hit the wrong people um, routinely. So, so that's why they're willing to use it, because we basically can't hit them. They don't exist. Anyway, well, thank you all very much. I appreciate you. Thank you.